0: Introducing From the Glove Box, an automotive podcast with Mike and Tony Tadich, the father son team and owners of Team T Automotive in Northern Indiana. Today we talk about fatal flaws, first cars, and shocks and struts.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Mike and Tony Tadich bringing you From the Glove Box, another uh, podcast episode. Uh, uh reminder to everybody out there, we're a father-and-son-owned uh, service center uh, group in northern Indiana, and we get on uh, you know uh, a couple times a month and talk about different car things. Uh, so how you doing today, Tony? I'm doing pretty good. You don't sound too peppy. Eh, I leave the pep to you. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's good. Uh, so we were talking before we got on today about uh, different um, topics and stuff like that, and we were thinking about think of cars that were really pretty good cars but they they had one or two major flaws that made them not so great um you know and they had problems so you had a you know pretty pretty good solid car but uh it had uh, had some weird flaws and stuff so um you know i know one thing that comes to mind with me are the old uh, cj jeeps Um, and even some of the Suzuki little Samurais and stuff like that, great little four wheel drive vehicles. But, uh, one of the major flaws with those cars was a really short wheelbase, um, that was a, you know, major problem in rollovers and stuff, or if you try to change lanes really quickly and stuff like that, that was, uh, one that came to mind and stuff. I think Jeep and, uh, Chrysler Dahmer that owns Jeep now has switched that and, made a longer wheelbase and four doors and all those things but i remember that being a uh, you know people didn't want to buy jeeps because they were unsafe because of rollovers and stuff but, uh any thoughts on that or any other cars like that tony
0: well as we were talking here contrary to popular belief mike and i aren't smart enough to be able to uh run this podcast on our own so our button pusher brody brought up uh, nissan transmissions as of late i think from his own personal experience <laughs> um but uh you know, Nissan has had a pretty huge problem with uh, CVT transmissions, and a lot of rogues and Altimas, and in multiple cars that way. Um As of recent, uh, a lot of a lot of what comes up to to my mind in this is blind spots. Um, the fourth generation Camaro, so running from nineteen ninety three to two thousand and two. You couldn't see either front fender or either quarter panel in any mirror, any which direction out of that car whatsoever. Um, The Chrysler 300, when it first came out, was very boxy, and you could not look back over your left shoulder or your right shoulder when you're changing lanes or really position the mirrors all that well to be able to see the cars coming up in either lane when you're changing lanes in those cars. So. A lot of those cars really created heavy, heavy blind spots because the shorter in stature windows or the curvature of the roof line of the car Um, that caused caused quite a bit of accidents um,
1: because of that. Yeah, and and that's a good point. There's uh, some things that were made really cool in cars uh, but caused the problem. So one comes to mind is a 1963 Corvette split window. So the back window had this, uh, you know, four inch five inch piece of steel right down the middle which was really cool and made those cars really rare and worth a lot of money but if you ever drove one of those and you attempted to look out the rear view mirror (laughs) it uh, was pretty tough because you had this big piece of metal in the back i think uh the other one that comes to mind is you know probably the you know 1970-ish ford uh mustang mach one um the they made the rear window almost uh perpendicular to the sky uh so you just pretty well couldn't see out of that and and I think even flipping to modern cars I know uh when my wife and Tony's mom uh, looked for a new SUV a few years ago it was shocking how some of the uh you know sportier uh SUVs uh you just couldn't see really well out of the back or the headrests were in the way to see out of the back so um, I think as you talk about some major flaws, is is it is that blind spot? Um, how how well can you see? I think I think if you spin that also, I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people like driving an SUV because they feel they sit up higher, they feel um, you know the blind spots are less uh, uh, less than that and stuff. So I think
0: that's one of the reasons. Though we've had the evolution of technology, so now you have blind spot monitors that that tell you if there's a car in the on Oncoming on either side of you or tell you if you're backing out of a parking spot at the mall and there's somebody walking alongside the car and there's a lot more technology that's come in to reduce blind spots for these fatal flaws of cars
1: yeah and if uh, if you have one of those cars one of the modern ones that have that um, blind spot if you're bark- backing out of a parking spot at the mall or something um, and then it crams the brakes on all of a sudden for you and scares the crap out of you so um, if you, those are in the last couple of years of, of cars, but that's a pretty, that's a pretty, you you always get mad at the car. Now it's supposed to save you from, uh, you know, running over somebody, but, uh, it sounds uh, like you're speaking from experience. Well, let's say have maybe happened a time or so too, maybe, <laughs> but maybe with that. So, but, uh, yeah, so we think of those different things. Um, you know, I even think, uh, if we go back to, you know, uh, John DeLorean, you know, was a great engineer for, I think. GM and Ford at at certain times and uh, started his own car company, the DeLorean, which was featured in what movie, Tony? Back to the Future. Yeah. So that uh, Uh, he phone home. Yeah. (laughs) That uh, going stainless steel car and stuff uh, um, had, and we worked on quite a few of those uh, in the areas. One of the fatal flaws, I think, in that car was it was a really cool looking sports car with a really crappy little V six GM engine that uh wouldn't really pull its way out of uh much of anything. So it was uh as cool as the car was it uh, had no get up and go. So um uh, those are uh those are first up scenes with that. I'm trying to think of other, you know, modern vehicles that uh you know came out that uh, you know, were you know, maybe failures at first. Um Thank Brody,
0: what did you tell us earlier with the exhaust fire? So Brody said it's a Lamborghini. There's certain Lamborghinis that were notorious, and I've seen videos of this where they're sitting at a stoplight and they're revving their exhaust and everything. And believe it or not, when you rev your exhaust, if you're in a performance car, it could shoot a flame out the exhaust. Um, and when that happens and it backfires, it'll shoot a small flame out. Well, one of the rear ends of the Lamborghinis had too much plastic too close to the center cut out of the exhaust, so it would actually catch the plastic on fire when it would backfire, and actually would melt down the whole back of the car. So they had to I believe they had to go in on those and a lot of times extend the exhaust tips or did something to mitigate the plastic around the back. Um, I even read a story a little while back, and there's such things in cars called two steps and stuff like that when you're launching a car from a stop and when it does that, it'll pop and bang and, and everything And the city of New York has actually made that illegal to do on the street now because it actually sets off their gunfire, uh, detection system, um, in the city and causes police to go after, uh, where exhaust and street racers are going around and stuff. So, but, uh, those Lamborghinis were notorious for burning down the back of, uh, back of the car, sitting at a stop sign or stoplight.
1: Yeah. Those were, uh, those were, uh you know, big issues and stuff. I know, you know, wasn't a lot of those floating around on the cars, on the roads and stuff, but, uh, yeah, you don't find too many Lambos in Indiana <laughs> now. Um, I mean, even probably 30 years ago too, we ran into, uh, you know, Ford and, uh, Firestone tires gotten a big lo- lawsuit over rollovers of, uh, their, uh, earlier like Bronco, uh, little Broncos Explorer Explorer. Yeah. There's SUVs. a lot of Ford explorers in Indiana. <laughs> there are a lot of those and stuff, but uh but those uh you know those cars had issues uh you know as well with uh and it was kind of a fight between is it the tire is it the vehicle and it ended up being there being that so here's something too if you think about this, most of your cars now have uh tire pressure monitors on the dash and they and they have uh thirty two thirty five pounds of pressure. a lot of manufacturers have adjusted that where uh tire pressure may be different on the front or rear of a car i know there was several manufacturers that tried to compensate for these uh rollover problems um because with with tire pressure and stuff so um you know so there was all sorts of things hey, I was- you want
0: to talk about a fatal flaw most people find that tire pressure monitors are a fatal flaw uh, when the light turns on in and everything. The fatal flaw of a tire pressure monitor is the batteries that are installed on them most of the time only have a shelf life of about seven years. So once seven years expire, you end up needing all new tire pressure monitors Yeah. in a lot of vehicles. It depends on where you're at and your geographical region and your weather and that type of stuff. In Indiana, we can be 100 degrees in the summertime and we can be zero degrees in the wintertime. So that can be rougher on batteries.
1: Yep. That changes tire pressures and stuff. And, uh, as Tony talked about tire pressure monitors, uh, those have watch batteries pretty much embedded in them and they're not replaceable like a watch battery is. So those were, uh, you know, definitely some issues there and stuff. So yeah, a lot of different cars. I mean, there's, uh, all sorts of different, uh, you know, cars that came out and people had great ideas and, and stuff. And they had, they had a few issues and stuff. So we can uh, talk
0: about a modern major flaw in a car. The Tesla Cybertruck with bulletproof windows can't even take a, a rock or a softball thrown by Elon Musk to the window.
1: <laughs> I did not see that. That's, that's a viral
0: video that's out when he uh, unveiled the Tesla Cybertruck and was trying to show that it uh, had bulletproof glass and he takes the, the little uh, uh, weighted uh, metal sphere and throws it against the side window and shatters the whole side window, spiders all out and everything. So no longer has bulletproof glass.
1: Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's a good one to see. So those are those are quite a few of the different ones. I just was searching through a little bit. There's an old car that Chevy made called a Corvair, which was a rear engine car. Um, and I when I, junk. well, they were actually pretty cool. But the problem, the flaw with those were, if you lived in a mountainous state, and at that time I was young and we lived in California, uh, those cars would come down a mountain pass and the road would be slick and the, the car's weight distribution sucked. So all the weight of the car was in the back, pretty much in the trunk, and then the the cars would just you know slide out and uh, have uh, have uh, major issues and stuff. So that was that was one flaw. It was a cool cool car, but it was definitely uh, you know definitely a little bit of uh, the, oh Ford Fierro or excuse me Pontiac Fiero just came up as one with that. So anyhow, there's a lot of different ones and stuff, but uh, you know kind of look out for those. I mean, Consumer Reports does a great job with that. Um, you can look at a lot of, uh, good different, uh, you know, manufacturers reports and stuff. So, um, so anyhow, that's a little bit about cars with maybe some fatal flaws. I know we've talked about in other episodes, the Pintos and the, uh, AMC Pacers and the Pontiac Aztec, Pontiac Aztec. We talked about that car
0: was entirely a flaw. There was nothing, not (laughs) one fatal flaw.
1: Yeah. There was a, there was a whole bunch of those. What about the, the smart car too, you know? uh yeah, the biggest fatal flaw of that is i don't fit in it <laughs> well yeah uh tony's uh I, I we had one in a shop a couple years ago and i took a picture of tony on and I, we called it a uh, big guy in a little car i we may have used something more mean than that but uh, uh but anyhow that's a little bit of talk about that uh about uh, cars that have some issues
0: The glove box crew, what's
1: your guys's first car, and uh is there a story behind it So Tony, getting back to this uh I think the caller uh, shared you know so, stories about our first car and um issues, maybe the fun side, maybe the bad side, but uh um talk about your first car and uh the good, the bad, the ugly, I guess of that. I paid
0: $1,350, I believe, for a 1994 V6 Black Camaro. I remember that. Yeah. So, didn't have enough money to buy new tires, but had enough money to buy new wheels. So, put chrome wheels on a used set of tires, put them on it, put an exhaust on it, and put a big stereo in it. And if I remember correctly, I was about 15 when I bought this car, maybe 14 and a half. Um, So, obviously, not of legal driving age. Um, but anytime I I will say, God bless my mother, because anytime I wanted to, when I had my permit, she would ride in the passenger seat and let me drive my car instead of driving her vehicle. Um, but, uh, I remember the, the first time I got the cops called on me for a vehicle related incident, I didn't even have a driver's license, but I had the music up too loud in the garage by myself with subwoofers going and had the police show
1: up at your house. <laughs> See, you know, if if any if, if any of your parents out there, there's always these mysterious stories that come up um once your kids become adults that uh you know, even though we thought we knew everything and we were really good parents that uh just some stuff went on at the house that we didn't always know everything. So that's that was probably one of those and that's probably not the only story we don't know about. And really quite frankly, some of the crap I really didn't want to know about. So
0: Now that I'm older, I understand the fact that we live next to a condominium complex that had some elderly people living there that really didn't appreciate bass-heavy rap music uh, of the uh, early 2000s. And yeah, I was apparently trying to get them to appreciate it, according to the uh, uh, fellow
1: police officers that came to visit me. Well, must have been pretty loud because the closest house was like a football field away. So, but, uh, (laughs) you know, great thing about that is... uh, Tony's got four young ones and, uh, a set of twins. So his, his time's coming and, uh, grandpa will get to sit back and kind of, kind of laugh about that stuff. So, um, what was I, your first car? The first car I bought was a 1970 Chevy Malibu, uh, Chevelle Malibu, but really it was a Malibu cause that's the, was the cheaper version. Um, and I remember that car, um, if you if you bought an old car and you're an older dude like i am they they rusted out so uh guys would fill in with bondo or they would you know uh take a rusty uh section of a fender and fill it in with that and i think once i bought that car i think it had so much bondo which is just kind of a plasticky you know fiberglass material it allows you to kind of get rid of the rust for a little while it had so much in it that I, th- and the right rear corner that I think literally the car sagged because that stuff probably had a hundred pounds worth of extra weight in it. So, <laughs> but it was, uh, um, it was, and we would always, the one thing we always did when those, uh, c- cause Hey, for everybody in this day and age, really modern cars don't rust out much anymore. You don't see the rusty autom- of plastic. Well, a lot of plastic, a lot of, you know, and we've done a better job with the metal, but you know, back in the sixties and seventies and even eighties rust was a big factor but you would take your hand and you would run it along the fender well like where the tire sits in there and you could feel if it's a nice clean metal edge or if it was rough and big plasticky then you knew uh, somebody put this bondo in there and stuff but that or if you knock down the whole side of the car knocking
0: on a door down the side of the car you can tell the difference between the hollowness and the thud of
1: bondo yeah it was so it would be it almost be like if you if you if you're not familiar with that'd it be like play-doh that you left set out on the counter and it became really hard and stuff that's about what that was so yeah so that car i had uh what time of year did you pick that car up at now that was the second one i bought a 70 i got i sold that car and i bought a 71 chevelle ss um it was originally a 454 v8 car that had a 350 in it but I bought that car in December, um, and it had really wide, uh, mag wheels and tires on the back. Um, and, uh, I had a, uh, let's just say a not so nice relative that dropped me off to pick up that car and he just left me in the driveway. So I gave the guy the cash. Um, I went to back the car out and it had snowed a few inches. Um, and, uh, that was before cell phones and everything. And I could not back that Car out of that guy's driveway for about two hours, so I was shoveling I was uh probably sixteen and a half seventeen years old. I was crying. It took me like two hours and I lived five minutes away to get the damn thing home so I finally got it home and stuff and uh yeah that that car was I was a little mad at the first time we met so <laughs> <laughs> but uh no it was a cool car. I wish I had that car back and most of uh most of us uh, think of cars that uh, we would have back and stuff but uh but yeah, you know, think, think about that first car and, you know, and think about whether it was, uh, you know, for a lot of Americans, it was a love of some type of sports car. A lot of times now it's just transportation. It's not a big deal and stuff. So, um, but uh, you know,
0: there's still a decent amount of people that have a passion for, for their car, have a passion for the accessories that they put on their car and stuff. And I think that's, I think that's something that used to be more profound in our society and seems to be shrinking a little bit, but also in some areas, it seems to be coming back a little bit more. You know, you talked about the Chevelle. I know my Camaro, my Camaro wasn't the coolest, fastest thing, but I did stuff to it that made me appreciate it and stuff and some custom areas and everything. So
1: Well, and I think, uh, I think those first cars that we have when we begin to drive are are almost like, uh, that song that comes up. up on the radio that you remember, and you and it puts you back in that time of uh, of your life and what was going on in your life, and you know whether you're driving it to school or you're driving it on a date or the to the Friday night football game, uh, and all those things came about with the car and stuff. So yeah, I think you know as as Americans we we really uh, uh, you know love the modern automobile. I don't see mass transportation coming anytime soon in the United States America because in most cases. Americans love their cars. So, uh, you know, so this was just a couple little stories. I know the caller called in, but a couple little stories about some of the first cars we had. But uh, it's more for you all to think about uh, maybe the first car uh, uh, that you had also and think about some of the good memories and maybe some of the things that uh, maybe you were a poor high school kid or college kid and you were driving a car that was a POS, I think they call it. We'll try not to cuss on the broadcast, but uh, anyhow, we all have those. So that's a little bit about the first cars and uh, loves for those. You know, so if we've uh, talked about different uh, subjects on this podcast, we've talked about, we haven't used it all the time, but we're trying to get uh, honed in on a few different things on each episode. But driving the discussion uh, one of the topics that we were talking about before we got on this one was shocks and struts on cars and you know what the difference is and there's a lot of there's a lot of controversy over when should i replace my shocks and struts uh when shouldn't i what are what are their um you know what do they do and and uh cars used to strictly have shocks now they have you know some have struts on the front and shocks on the back and uh some are struts all the way around but uh tony talk to us a little bit about uh you know what a what a shock and what a strut is and what the differences is all are and let's ch- chat this out a little bit
0: so a shock and a strut to me in in i'm sure there's a better definition than my definition but to me the main difference between a shock and a strut is a strut is usually an assembly that contains the coil spring on the actual strut assembly so was coined by a gentleman by the name of McPherson, I believe. That's why it's uh, technically called the McPherson strut. Um, But the coil spring and the mount and everything is all in one uh, in an assembly with the um, shock absorber, if you may, uh, that's part of that. So versus a standard shock, which is still primarily used on pickup trucks, um, is literally just the shock absorber and neither has... Uh, a coil spring separate of that has a leaf spring somewhere has a leaf spring and a coil spring somewhere has some other way to be able to carry the load or the weight of the vehicle the main job of a shock or a strut uh, is to really absorb the road and to also absorb impact so therefore it lessens the blow on ball joints tie rod ends other other items a lot of times when i'm talking to a client, I equate your shock absorber or your strut to your knee. When you're running, your knee takes a lot of the impact. Your hip doesn't take a lot of the impact. Your knee does. Um, so that's really, to me, how how a shock and a, a strut actually function. The thing that I always go back to with shocks and struts is a couple of years ago, one of the largest uh, shock and strut producers in the world is Monroe, um, and I got to go. I do what's called a Monroe Ride and Drive. So they have three different vehicles. So the one that I went to, they had a BMW car. They had a SUV and a GMC Acadia. And then they had a minivan and a Chrysler Town & Country. Um, They have two versions of both cars. One version has brand new shocks and struts on it from Monroe. The other version has 50,000 mile old shocks and struts on it. Both cars have around 50,000 miles so i got to drive both of the minivans go ahead poke yep. fun you know he's four kids he, he's My he's a minivan. a minivan he's a
1: minivan guy yeah. now so yeah. you know no cool no cool camaros or anything like yep. that he's the minivan and a, yeah. and a hybrid minivan yeah. too to
0: i got yeah. the cn all-wheel drive hybrid <laughs> there you go man yeah awesome you see me rolling oh yeah yep. yep so um of course i got to drive the minivan so we had to go through a slalom course, we had to do an emergency panic stop. We had to do a bunch of different things, uh, avoid a deer that ran out, stuff like that on this road course in these vehicles. And the amount of difference to me was shocking, no pun intended, <laughs> uh, between the vehicle that had 50,000 mile old shocks and struts and 50,000 or in still had 50,000 miles on the vehicle, but, but had brand new shocks and struts. The handling of the vehicle was vastly different, especially in a top-heavy vehicle like a minivan. Those aren't meant to corner very well, and I'm running this thing through this course at 40 to 60 miles an hour and weaving and doing all kinds of crazy stuff that you're not supposed to be doing that type of speed. Um, and the, just the way that the thing handled and drove was, was vastly different between the two cars. The biggest difference between the two was when it came to the panic stop. I bet you that minivan stopped probably 150 to maybe 200 feet sooner and faster than what the van did that had the original 50,000 mile shock. Now, now wait a minute, it.
1: explain to everybody. Um, I thought brakes and good tires stop the car. Why would, a, why would struts and shocks on a car make a car stop quicker?
0: So, it's got to go back to weight distribution. So, earlier in this episode, we talked about the Corvair that would spin out because it had so much weight in the back of the car. So, when you go to stop, most of us are driving forward. um, And when we stop in a panic stop, because you're moving down the road, you're not driving in reverse. Think about where all the weight
1: of your vehicle is. It's in the front. That's where your engine is. So, So the car does a nosedive. Yep. If you have to take a really quick stop, you can watch the hood of your car. And it really takes a nosedive or it goes down a little bit.
0: Versus when you have new shocks and struts, the car is not going to nosedive as much. It's going to keep that weight a little bit higher. So, therefore, basic geometry tells you the triangle uh, of the vehicle that, that
1: you're making with the I, points. I, I, I can't remember what he got in geometry in school, but we'll, we'll see here. I actually got an A in that. Did you really? Yeah. Okay. That okay. is algebra. Shout out John Kusella okay. that I didn't
0: do very well with. So. <laughs> there you go. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, when the vehicle nose dives, it actually it will take longer on the bottom cur- or bottom of the triangle to be able to stop. So when the vehicle maintains the the
1: weight at the top side, it'll actually take a shorter distance to be able to stop. Good good point. So when you see that when that nose dives, that means the whole weight of the vehicle. Think of if you're walking down a couple steps with a, a load of firewood and you're going out to your campfire and you lean forward, that weight uh, will make you off balance and make you maybe trip or fall. That's what happens with your car and that slows down the stopping of an automobile. Cause there's always big discussions on when do we replace a, a shock or strut? Um, Cause the old shocks were on cars. They were to shock, absorb, and make the car ride smoother. The McPherson strut as Tony, uh, or we refer to it as just strut uh, in slang, it's a load carrying device. So when they switched cars from a transmission and a rear differential, and a lot of weight in the middle and the back of the car, and put all the weight in the front in a front wheel drive car or an all wheel drive car, they had all this weight right over the front two tires. So they needed something much beefier to hold that. Um, so that you know the weight distribution changed a lot. That's what it came came about. But there's a lot of talk on when those need to be replaced. Some people say you know, 60,000, you'll see probably a company, you know, a shock selling company. Some, some people say a hundred thousand, some people I've heard even dealers say you never have to replace them if they're not leaking or whatever. Um, so, you know, you're going to get a bunch of different opinions on different shops with that. Um, but I think the thing is what Tony said Think about the time that you have to make a panic stop. Think about the time that you're driving down a curvy road the the other thing I think a, a strut does really well its job is to keep the tire pressed down to the to the uh, pavement and a nice even footprint so if you turn if you go through a curve, the weight shifts and it puts a lot more weight on that um, so a a strut that's not leaking or not uh, doesn't have any outside damage, uh, but maybe has a hundred thousand miles on it. You could buy a brand new set of tires for that are fifty or sixty thousand mile rated tires, and turn them into a thirty thousand mile tire because that strut's not doing its job. So,
0: so the bigger side of when to replace shocks and struts isn't so much what the dealer says or the shop says or what the strut manufacturer says. Really, what it is is how long are you planning on keeping the car? If you're planning on keeping the car for 10 years, 200,000 miles, I would tell you you should replace your shocks and struts in that 80 to maybe 120,000 mile range. So you get good use out of them because 200,000 mile struts, while they still work and I'm doing air quotes saying work, uh, they, they're not going to perform the best for you. So if you're planning on driving that car a long time, I would tell you to replace them probably closer to the 100,000 mile mark, but in that window that I just ranged that way.
1: Yeah, and we'll wrap it up with this. Um, one of the comments that most people say to us once they get new shocks and struts on our car, so you bought a car brand new, um, and now it's got 90,000, 100,000 miles on it. Um, that ride dissipates and gets a little weaker and gets a little softer over time, but you really don't notice it because it's happened over three, four, five years. The number one uh, thing that somebody will put back in a five-star review or something to us will be uh, will this. I didn't realize uh how weak everything got. And now the car's back to handling and riding like it like it was when it was new. Um that that's a that's a great feedback. And people because it just kind of dissipates over a short period of time. So anyhow, talk to your local shops. Uh, make sure that you uh have them pay attention to that. Don't wait till they're just leaking or broken uh because they do a lot of other things other than just give you a smooth ride. They help it be stable. They help it break well. They help you be be, uh, safe and reliable out there on the road. So that's our little bit on uh, shocks and struts. Hey, this is uh, Father and Son Team, Mike and Tony Tadich. Just want to thank you for hanging out with us again today. So you got anything to wrap up, Tony? It's
0: uh, uh, shutting the glove box time. So we'll see you next time on the next episode. Take care, everybody. Make sure you're here for our next one. Have a question for Mike and Tony? Call it in at
1: 888-201-0858. This podcast is brought to you by TMT Automotive and Momentum Drives Marketing.